the image that is there on the screen is one of the most significant photographs ever taken. It was taken by one of the Apollo astronauts as their spacecraft circled the moon in uh, the 1960s. And it's known as a photograph which changed our way of looking at the world because it was the first photograph that showed us the Earth as the island in space that it is. It brought home to us the truth that we only have one world. We cannot spoil it and overpopulate it forever. Immense though it is, we, we only have one world. We can talk about the old world and the new world. We can talk about the developed world and the third world or any other descriptions or, or schemes of, of different aspects of our world. But in truth, we only have one world. And on this one world, there is one self-aware species. I did have one intelligent species, but there's a question mark there, so I've changed that to self-aware species. We're, we're on this world together, and we are one people. You know that there is a greater genetic diversity between the Chihuahua and the Great Dane than there is between all the human beings on this planet. We, uh, we may look differently, we may have different cultures, we may have different eye folds and different skin colours, but we are one people. God has made us one. Sadly, human beings haven't always lived that way, haven't always accepted that. It was only a hundred years ago that an African pygmy was taken to the US and he was put in with the chimpanzees at the zoo because they thought he was more like them than a human being. No wonder when he got the opportunity he committed suicide. When we read the Bible though, we can see so clearly how God looks upon the human race as one. And how God loves each nation, each language, each ethnic group. And how the whole plan of the Bible is to call from all nations a people of his own. There is one world and one people, the human race. And our God loves us all. He wants a relationship with us all. We cannot look on the black man as less deserving than the white or the Chinese or any other race as dispensable. To be faithful to our God is to be concerned for the peoples of the world. For we are one people. Now that doesn't mean we neglect our own land and our own people. Mission is local, regional and global. But it does mean we need that global vision. For we are one people. One people, as we look out upon our world, who are corrupted and damaged by sin. One people who so often show hatred when there should be love. One people, so many of whom are hurting and in need of healing. And one people who so often know what is right, 
but just cannot find the ability to do it. What's the solution to this corruption in our one world, among our one people? And when we read the Bible again, we find the solution to the problem comes. It's come from the one God. Our reading this morning stressed that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is the one hope for all humanity. Now, we live in an age in which tolerance is one of the uh, dominant values. We're taught from the earliest age to tolerate differences, sometimes even to, to celebrate those differences, and in many areas of life, that's a good thing. But for the Christian, there must be a limit to tolerance. We must not tolerate the idea that Jesus Christ is one among a number of saviours. We must not tolerate the idea that there are many paths to God and Jesus is simply one of them. We must not tolerate the idea that people are happy outside of Christ and they should be left to their own devices. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And so the uniqueness of the revelation of Jesus, of the Christian faith, is central to the biblical revelation of who God is and what he's done for all of us. You may wonder why do I feel I have to say this. After all, doesn't every Christian know that Christ is unique? That God has provided the way of salvation, of new life, the way of wholeness and forgiveness and healing through the death of his son Jesus on the cross? Well, I believe that there are many Christians, many churches have lost that sense of the uniqueness, the, the belief that the only solution to the world's problems is through Jesus Christ. A few years ago, a young Christian from one of our more conservative churches said to me, don't the Muslims worship the same God as us Christians? Well, I, I didn't want to put him off. Of course, I didn't want to offend him. Always have to think carefully of how you express yourself because it's so easy with these questions to actually miscommunicate. So I pointed to brothers and sisters in Christ who have been Muslims who have become followers of Jesus and reminded him that if we ask them, they will say to us very strongly that when they were a Muslim still, they did not know God. Now, some of the Muslim teachings about God are true. Of course they are, because the Quran draws a lot from the Bible, especially the Old Testament. But the Muslim view of God is different from the truth we have revealed to us in the whole Bible. Over the years, I have known people who have come to Jesus from all sorts of different backgrounds, converted Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Sikhs and Hindus, are just some of them. Some of you here come from those backgrounds. But all of these people maintained that they had found the true God through Jesus Christ. It was not a matter of worshipping God in another way, but the simple fact was they did not know God 
until they receive Jesus as their Saviour and Lord. The kingdom of God is not found in truths about God, but through a relationship with him. It's clear in the scriptures. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, says Peter. The Bible doesn't say you've got to be a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Roman Catholic or, or anything else of all the labels we place on, on different groups, but that you must believe in Jesus, that Jesus must be the, the centre of your allegiance, your faith, your trust, that your values and your character must be from your faith and trust in him. It must grow out of that relationship rather than all of the uh, various clamor, uh, philosophies and, and people clamoring for our allegiance in life. Jesus was also clear and exclusive when he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I went through a garden in northern Thailand once. It was a beautiful garden and it had truths uh, from the, uh, the Buddhist scriptures up on all the aspects of the garden. And do you know about 50-60% of them, you could have taken them from the Bible. They were wonderful truths, meditative, but really great truths. Ah, there's 30 or 40% of them that, nope, we don't quite agree with that. But those truths won't lead you into a relationship with God. Faith in Jesus is what leads us into that relationship. And if we could enter into the presence of God just through following the teachings of the Buddha, there wouldn't have been a reason for Jesus to die. If we could follow Muhammad's teachings, all the laws to obey and all the rituals to perform, if that would gain us the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus would not have commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. Because they would have been okay on their own. But that is the great commission that our Lord gave to us. Another thing we must not tolerate is the growing materialism of our society. Many Christians see the gospel now in materialistic terms rather than in spiritual terms. The task of mission and conversion is seen as irrelevant even in the church. By our own actions, we Christians often show what we believe. By our own actions, many Christians show that we really believe the real need of humanity is food or shelter or clothing or employment or self-esteem rather than spiritual transformation through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we show it because it's much easier for missions to raise funds and gain support for an agriculturalist or a doctor than it actually is to gain support for an evangelist or a church planter. Now, of course, material things are important. Food, clothing, shelter, employment, social justice, these things are essential for worthwhile human life. We know that. But I want to remind you that the spiritual needs are just as great as the physical. The need for social justice should never overwhelm the need for people to come to a knowledge of God through Jesus Christ.
In fact, sadly, I have seen people who were inoculated against the gospel because of handouts and aid. Now, I repeat, caring for people is demonstrating the truth of the gospel and the love of God, and we must live out those truths. But we don't care enough if all we do is care for people's bodies and lifestyle. That's a betrayal of Jesus. Love people as whole beings. And part of that love is introducing them to the source of love itself. So we come to this situation. One world which is distorted by corruption and sin. One people, one humanity lost and in great need. Need of material help and spiritual help to meet Jesus Christ, to know him as Saviour and Lord. And we have one Lord, one faith and one baptism. How do we bring that together? It comes together, you know, with the fact that there was one life given for us so that each of us can give one life for the glory of God. That's really all we have to give to God. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to us. Why? So that we might be able to give our lives back to him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, One died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. And in our reading in Ephesians 4.1, it says, Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So this morning the question for you is, what are you doing with your one life? What are you going to do with the rest of it? Is it going to be used by God to meet the needs of this one world people through our one Lord? Or are you going to live your one life for yourself? Investing your life in material things that grow old and decay and break down so that you have to invest even more time and energy and money into them to, to replace them? in that materialistic treadmill which so many people in our society are captive to? Or maybe rather than things that rust and decay, perhaps you're going to be a little more worthy and invest your life in relationships, in life and in family. And that's not a bad thing. Of course it's a good thing, yet to be restricted in our investment to just our own little family is still to refuse to take on board the character of the God who loves the whole world and loves the peoples and nations of this world. What is your one life going to count for when you come to the end of the road? How many people are you going to be able to say you've introduced to the Lord? How many people can say you have helped them along the way? How many lives will your one life touch? Even more importantly, when you stand before the one Lord, the one God, what will he say? Will he be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Will he be able to say, when you did it to the least of these, my children, you did it to me? 
You might think that you have the rest of your life. You might think that you have a long time to live. And uh, contrary to what Bruce said at the introduction, I hope there's still a fair bit more for me. But you know, we don't know that because none of us has tomorrow. We only have this day, we only have this moment that is given to us, one moment at a time in which to live life. Each moment given to us is unique and it passes into the past never to be repeated. You don't have two lives to live and to give to God, you only have one. You can never go back and live another day again. You've got one life to live. One of my favourite songs is that classic Sher song, If I Could Turn Back Time. If you know it, it's a great song because we all wish at times that we could live life over again. We could turn back time and we could undo the mistakes that we've made. That's understandable, but let's face it, the reality is we can't turn back time. We can't go back. We've only got one life to live. And we're called to live it for the glory of God. You might think that your one life can't count for much. But if so, you're wrong. There are many who could prove it. Yes, I could point to people who have changed the course of history. People like Martin Luther or William Carey who are the greats of the Christian faith. It's easy to find some who seem to shine like bright stars in a dark sky. But you know, most intercultural workers are not like that. Most are ordinary people who have given their one life to an extraordinary God. There was a story from the Middle Ages of an angel who came and promised that the worker who did the most to build this glorious cathedral would be given a, a special prize, a special mention. And so all of the workers worked hard and, and they all strived to be the one who would get the special mention. The story, as the story goes, and at the conclusion when the beautiful building was built, the person whom the angel declared was the one who was given the prize of the most important work, worker was the man who brought the hay to feed the oxen who were the beasts of burden that carried the stone for the, uh, for the building. Yes, it's a story, but the point was there are Many things that happen in the background, many things that happen in secret, many things that uh, nobody ever recognises but God sees. And they are the things that a, a one life can be invested into that is contributing and bringing glory to, the God, to God. Because, as I said, most people are not extraordinary. I'm certainly not. But each of us can give our one life into the hands of our extraordinary God and he can take it and multiply that to his glory. One life can still count by going and God still needs people. 
There is still a call. There are still people who can go from life, from birth to death, without having an understandable presentation of the good news. There are people who need to hear that. And God is still calling men and women to cross national and cultural and geographic and ethnic boundaries to enter into language learning and immerse themselves in another culture to incarnate the gospel and to share that good news. Maybe there's some here who God is speaking to who's saying, get off the materialistic treadmill. Trust me. I will look after you. I will provide for you. Obey me and follow me. Certainly there is still a need for some to go. Of course, one life can count by praying. So often I've heard of situations like when staff were kidnapped in Zambia or when hospitals were held at, hospital staff were held at gunpoint in the highlands of Papua New Guinea and Australians were informed and gathered together and, and, and prayed and those who were uh, held in these situations reported that as people prayed their captors' minds were somehow changed and both situations uh, were resolved peacefully. Miraculous answers to prayer as to why these violent people gave up and, and let their captives go. But prayer is the foundation of the work of the church locally, of mission regionally and globally. So your one life can count as you pray. Of course, one life can count by giving. Remember a man who used to come into our mission regularly and a couple of times a year and hand over two or three hundred thousand dollars. He's a very humble man. He said he can't do much. He can't serve God. He can't teach Sunday school. He can't preach. He says, it seems to me the only thing God's made me good at is making money. And money was not his God. So he made the money and he gave it to God's work. Not all of us have that sort of gifts, but we can all give. God blesses us and as he blesses us, we can give a portion. One life can change a ministry by our giving. I heard a Singaporean pastor speaking to students once and he said, you've heard it said, give it till, given till it hurts. Well, he said, I reckon we Christians have a low pain threshold in that area. Keep that in mind. Your life can be, a, your, your giving is a contribution always to God's work, God's glory. One life can make a difference. One life can change a church by your love, by your service, by your encouragement of one another, by living a life worthy of the calling you have received. One life can change a church. One life can change a family. As you show the love of God, children who have become followers of Jesus have often won their, their, their parents over and their siblings over. One life can turn a whole family around. One life can change a workplace or a classroom. When I 
went to high school, there was one Christian who came and joined us in high school and we were 12 years of age. I wasn't a believer. My parents believed in God and they sent us to Sunday school, but uh, that was about all. The Sunday school was a, a brief holiday respite for them for a few hours uh, each Sunday and uh, they thought it would teach us some morality, make us good kids. But that was about all it was. But that one Christian lived out his faith consistently over the four years and by the time we finished high school, half the class were followers of Jesus. One life can change a, a classroom or a workplace. Yes, it may create persecution as well. If those who don't want the values of Christ oppose it, Jesus himself was persecuted and hounded to death. Some of us can be too. But one life can bring love, it can bring joy, it can bring all sorts of blessing into a workplace or a classroom. And one life and one life and one life and one life, when all put together, when given over to the one Lord, can change our one world. And Christians have been doing that now for 2,000 years and the mission continues until Christ returns. So it is said, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. What step does God want you to take today? If you don't know Jesus, he's calling you to commit yourself to the one Lord. To accept that Jesus loves you and died for you. To respond to his call on your life. To use your one life for his glory. Be it at home here or in a slum or a city on the other side of the world. It may not be glamorous, but it is glorious. To look for the glamour is to miss the glory. Years ago, Robert Kennedy said of himself, Some men see things that are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? We need Christians with that attitude in the church, in the mission of our God. People who are willing to spend their one life for the glory of God. To dream things that currently are not and say, why not? Why not God's love in this place? Why not God's peace and God's joy in this place? What does God want me to do to bring these things about? in his strength, by his spirit, of course. When I was about 17, I heard a sermon not unlike this one. And at the end, the church organist shocked everyone by getting up from the organ and walking to the microphone to tell her story. When I was young, she said, the Lord told me to go to the mission field. But the young man I loved wasn't a Christian. And I told God no. She said, now I'm too old to go and I've regretted it ever since. Young people, she said, if God calls you, make sure you go because you'll regret it for the rest of your life if you don't. 
I don't know what God is saying to you about how he wants you to live the rest of your one life, whether there are changes you should make in your priorities and in your commitments for the future. That's between you and God. But I encourage you to remember the words of Jesus' own mother, words that she said at the occasion of his first miracle to those servants at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And in my paraphrase, whatever he says to you, Make sure you do it. Amen.